This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Well, actually, we don't live in Fredonia. The world has not quite achieved the level found in the 1932 Marx Brothers classic, Duck Soup. But the horrible thing is, we don't seem all that far removed. And while it is true that Rufus T. Firefly has not been appointed leader of the country, one has to wonder at this point if he might not be an improvement over Donald J. Trump, arguably the most unqualified man to ever serve as President of the United States, a man who makes George W. Bush look well-informed, a man who makes Richard M. Nixon look ethical, a man who makes Warren G. Harding look eloquent. Now, that one's a bit of a stretch. Then again, you are the Radio Parallax audience, so I think most of you are going to get it. Harding was famous for giving speeches which were generally regarded as incomprehensible. His one notable contribution in the English language was the addition of the word normalcy. He meant to say, in the speech referring to how we needed to get back to the way things were before World War I, that we needed to return to normality. Instead, he stumbled over the word, normalcy came out, got picked up by the newspapers, and entered the English language. But that does seem preferable, in a way, to a president saying, oh, in that speech when I said, I don't see any reason why it would be Russia, I meant to say, I don't see any reason why it wouldn't be Russia, even though it makes no sense in context. One can't say that up till now, anyway, it appears that Donald J. Trump, unlike Rufus T. Firefly, is not intent upon taking the nation into war. And you know, like a stopped clock, he does seem to be right on a semi-regular basis. Well, we could strengthen the statement and note that, you know, a stopped clock is right twice a day. And I guess Trump probably is too. He's been beat up uh, pretty badly for his disparaging remarks about NATO, but here in Radio Parallax, we have raised the question dating back many years ago as to what the utility of a military organization designed to prevent the expansion of Joseph Stalin would still have in the 21st century. It would seem, I think, fair to say that the Stalinistic threat to Western Europe has diminished. And yes, Mr. Merlin, we can say that Vladimir Putin did sort of invade Crimea, but if one does look at maps of that region, of what was, the, what was formerly the Soviet Union. If you go back to, say, the turn of the 19th century, you will note that those portions that were more recently Ukrainian were back then considered Russian. I have not verified this, but m my understanding is that Khrushchev more or less handed Crimea to Ukraine while drunk. Now, don't hold me accountable of that, because I, I have not researched it to verify that it is true, but I'm, I'm inclined to believe that it certainly might be. And no, we're not going to go into that today. In fact, we're going we're gonna to drop the subject of Trump temporarily and talk about some other things. First off, 
I want to mention that I discovered by accident while getting on the road to Bend, Oregon, that the last blockbuster in America was, in fact, in, in Bend. Curiously, Mr. Merlin and I were in that very store two years ago when we were scouting out locations for the great eclipse that took place last year. I bought a couple of DVDs because I'm the kind of guy that likes to buy DVDs. And I hoped for sort of a souvenir's sake to do so again this time, but alas, when we got to Bend, uh, NBC News was there with a camera talking to people about the experience of shopping in the last blockbuster ever. But I was unable to find a movie that I wanted to walk out the door with. There were a few I would have liked to have done that with, but they were all for rent, not for sale. The stuff for sale was, you know, the usual recent sort of garbage being produced by Hollywood. Anyway, something to ponder, this whole history of how we like to watch our, our movies and, and, and home entertainment. Um, I believe that Michael Nesmith of The Monkey's fame, I believe that Michael's mother uh, got into, like, renting what were then VHS tapes and liquor stores around the nation or franchised it and made millions of dollars in this. Business weasels, seeing an opportunity, then decided to move in on this market and put all those mom-and-pop stores out of business by creating a giant chain like Blockbuster, and then there were others. And just as Blockbuster and others did in all the mom-and-pop stores, so has the chain fallen victim to Netflix and others. Now, I would note that back when they were first renting VHS tapes and liquor stores, they seemed to have quite a few of the old classics up for rent. When the big chains came along like Blockbuster, they initially did have a classic section, but remember going in one day, years later, noticing that it was no longer there. When I asked about it, they said, oh no, we've moved those movies now in the various sections, drama, comedy, etc., etc., and soon enough, they all seem to drop away. Now, part of this is due to the fact that the youth of this nation and others seems to find black and white entertainment really weird and not something they want to watch. So while I did inquire in Bend about the possibility of getting my hands on The Road to Morocco by Hope and Crosby, the clerk had to inform me that, no, no, we don't have that one, sorry. Now, I don't know whether this is available on Netflix. I'm going to have Mr. McMillan with his technical prowess take a look and see if we can pull it up, but I, I kind of have my doubts. I don't know. Let's walk out of the world of commerce temporarily and look up in the sky because Mars is still, ladies and gentlemen, putting on one heck of a show. Go out after about 10 o'clock, look to the southeast. You can't miss it. It won't be this spectacular again until about the year 2034, so have a look. We hope uh, you enjoyed last week's program looking at Mars and water on Mars and floods on Mars and what that might mean for life, although we didn't talk about that very much. But let's face it, water is the precursor to life, so water is a big deal. I know more than once in this program we've talked about what happened back in 1976 when NASA put a couple of landers down on the red planet tasked with the mission of seeing if they could find evidence of living organisms. One of the tests was to drop a clump of soil into some liquid and see if it fizzed at all. And boy, did it. Unfortunately, NASA concluded that this was a chemical reaction and had nothing to do with living organisms. The great disappointment of this investigation was that although the Viking 1 and 2 spacecraft were able to look for organic molecules, None 
in fact, were found. Now, since we know, since the earliest days of the solar system, that things fall from the sky that contain carbon, the planet ought to be littered with chunks of carbon, even assuming somehow the planet didn't collect any when it formed, which is itself um, an unlikely proposition. Nevertheless, to everybody's great disappointment, probably Carl Sagan leading the list, the Vikings did not find any organic molecules. They claimed even down to the parts per billion. But this really didn't sit well with people. That just didn't seem right. Now, the Curiosity rover, which landed in Mars's Gale crater back in, uh, I guess it's 2012 now, uh, has been looking for organic molecules, and it has found them. There seems to be no doubt that on the red planet's surface there are complex organic molecules. So what happened back in 1976? Well, NASA is sheepishly admitting that apparently, (laughs) while the Viking probes may have actually found the molecules, they accidentally burned them up. Commenting on the lack of organics, Chris McKay at NASA's Ames Research Center in Mountain View, California, said it was just completely unexpected and inconsistent with what we knew. So haunted by Mars's missing molecules, researchers proposed one explanation after the other. None seemed to fit until yet another probe came into play. In 2008, as reported on Radio Parallax, NASA's Phoenix Lander found an odd salt near Mars's North Pole known as perchlorate. On Earth, we use it for rocket fuel and in fireworks because it becomes explosive at high temperatures. By the way, they'd suspected that perchlorates may have been the the cause long before the Phoenix lander, but nevertheless, we suspected it was there, and then we knew it was there, in fact. And then after thinking about it, scientists concluded that, well, if you have perchlorates in the soil and there are organics and you roast a sample of Martian soil to sniff out its constituent molecules, the perchlorates will burn up the organics. Hello? And reading about this in New Scientist, I was sort of surprised to note that um, the Curiosity rover discovered chlorobenzene, a six-carbon molecule with a honeycomb shape that can get produced if you burn carbon molecules with perchlorates. Thus, it is indirect evidence that there are organics on Mars. Although I'm not sure why it is chlorobenzene is not considered an organic. I don't know. I passed organic chemistry, and I thought that would make the cut. But, hey, what do I know? I'm not a chemist. Um, But anyway, scientists took a look back at the Viking data and found that, oh, yeah, they found chlorobenzenes back then, too. Again, pointing to the idea that, well, they just burned up the organics they found. On last week's program, um, Emily Lakdawalla, in our revisit to her previous conversation with us, pointed out that the Viking landers had just scraped a few centimeters deeper in the Martian soil, they almost certainly would have encountered water molecules. <laughs> Another near miss. Anyway, science moves ahead and, you know, in spurts. Sometimes it gets locked up for a time. Looking back at the Viking landers, I do recall the, the write-up about uh, Carl Sagan One of the cameras on the space probe is to be good enough to track something if it walked by the spacecraft. (laughs) Um, Sagan was was an optimist. But we need more optimists out there exploring uh, space. Um, Currently, the European Space Agency and NASA have agreed, at least in in intent, to um, go to Mars and retrieve some Martian soil to bring back and test it here on Earth. This is a... A complex undertaking, but 
we could do it. This is a lot harder than sending out a probe to bring back a few chunks of, uh, of material from the surface of an asteroid because you got to blast back off the Martian surface. But again, we could do this. And since we are talking about the possibility of life on Mars, I'd like to cite one of the columns in Astronomy Magazine by Bob Berman. I, I would add previous Radio Parallax guest, Bob Berman, who had a rather whimsical thing I will quote from extensively here, said Mr. Berman in the May edition of Astronomy Magazine, Are you ready for some exciting news about apathy? Back when Dan Golden was administrator of NASA, his sister was one of my students. She thoughtfully told me he loved Discover Magazine, especially my astronomy page. Pleased to hear it, I followed him closely after that, which is why I vividly remember August 6, 1996, when he called the press conference to make a jaw-dropping announcement. NASA's analysis of the Antarctic Martian meteorite ALH84001 revealed the possibility of life. Life on Mars. It finally happened. I quickly turned to my long-suffering wife and yelled, Now we'll find out! I'd long suspected that the endlessly repeated adage that everything will change if we find extraterrestrial life was wrong. That it gave our apathetic citizenry too much credit. That people wouldn't care if geeky scientists found evidence of some microscopic or plant-like organisms in a distant place. Even today, that adage is still repeated like a mantra. Bill Nye's December 3rd op-ed piece in the New York Times said the same thing. Finding extraterrestrial life would profoundly alter our everyday attitudes. Golden's announcement wasn't about some distant exoplanet. This was Mars. It was next door. So I figured now we'll finally know how the public reacts. I don't want to say I told you so. Actually, that's not true. I do want to say that because as I paid close attention the next day, nobody talked about the life on Mars discovery. People didn't care. That Dan Golden's announcement later proved too optimistic isn't relevant. It was one more sign our, cultural is, our culture is scientifically apathetic. Now fast forward to 2017. Someone in Sweden posts gorgeous Facebook photos of atmospheric ice crystal phenomenon. They showed halos. Then I read the comments. Wake up, folks, wrote the first guy. Here's proof the government is releasing metals into the atmosphere. The next commentator agreed. Absolutely. Fifteen years ago, I saw a ring around the sun. Now I often see them. The government's poisoning the air. You're wrong, I said to her, in my mind. Early on, you never noticed rings, which are called halos, by the way, because you didn't watch the sky and didn't know about refraction phenomenon. Now you're aware of rings, so you see them because they're common. And incidentally, metallic particles can't reflect light and wouldn't resemble ice crystal effects. They wouldn't form halos in the first place. It's no use. Ignorance of science seems only to be growing. Call it fake science or anything you want. It's spreading. Climate change is not real. We never went to the moon. White lines in the sky are from government programs. The Earth is flat. A planet named Nibiru is on a collision course with Earth. Armageddon's coming. Aliens are already here. Astronomers are keeping everything secret. Said Bob Berman, the problem lies deeper than the sad reality that few teenagers are participating in outdoor, hands-on nature hobbies like astronomy, birdwatching, or canoeing. Nonetheless, many are glued to screens with the potential to believe the fakery. Berman then proposes that he's founded a group, the NAP, the National Apathy Promotion, with a goal to get one million teenagers a year to say, don't bother me with astronomy. He closes by saying, it's a lofty goal, but with your help, we can succeed. Well, we still hope not. 
All right, let, let's, let's find some good news, which is sometimes not so easy. We would note that according to The Economist magazine, um, the state of Maine used a ranked choice voting system. It's the first time it's been tried, and it's been described as possibly providing a solution to America's dysfunctionally partisan politics. I like the piece in The Economist. It starts out with a quote we've used in this program many times from Robert Frost, which is, A liberal is a man too broad-minded to take his own side in a quarrel. The Economist has been following closely the great dysfunction of American democracy. A better way of voting may offer some help. But the truth is, the United States of America, largely thanks to gerrymandering, Despite winning large pluralities, the Democrats remain in the minority in state houses and in the U.S. Congress, both in the House of Representatives and in the Senate. Now, a lot of this has to do with the power of um, technology. Now, we can divide voters down to the, you know, the precinct level and know what tendencies are in these various uh, districts. The Economist took a look at what it would take for Democrats to have a better than 50% chance of winning control of the House in November's midterm elections. And they note they will need to win the popular vote by about seven percentage points. To put it another way, per their estimation, Republicans have about a 0.01% chance of winning the popular vote for the House. But they're estimating that the odds of the Republicans retaining a majority is at least one in three. And now this imbalance in, uh, in our legislative branch of government does go back to the founding of the republic. It is partly by design. The greatest and smallest of states all get two senators in order that Congress should represent territory as well as people. Yet the overrepresentation, notes The Economist, was not supposed to affect the House and the presidency. The magazine notes that the 13 states of the Union where people live closest together have 121 Democratic House members and 73 Republicans, whereas the rest, the rural districts, the rural states, have 163 Republicans and just 72 Democrats. And, of course, the bias is only deepening. The article contains a little datum that, that I was unaware of. Back in the 1800s, things were different. In the run-up to an election held in 1841, the Democrats running the state of Alabama chose to use a voting system in which all five representatives would be elected statewide. That would ensure an all-Democrat delegation. Fearful of a similar setback elsewhere, the Whig majorities of both houses of Congress passed a law requiring all states to use winner-take-all single-member districts. In 1932, a Supreme Court ruling enabled states to reinstate statewide elections for House members, and some did. But in order to prevent southern states from denying representation to black voters, Congress restored the single-member district requirements in 1967. Which is not itself so bad, but when you draw the lines the way you want to ensure that the party in power remains in power, well, it's, 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 it's down to a fine art, people. It's wrong, it's a bad idea, and we can fix it if we can get out of our apathy. And now... I don't have a plan for exactly how we should do this, but I do want to quote a great American president, Dwight D. Eisenhower, the man who planned the D-Day invasion of Europe, when he once said, in preparing for battle, I have always found that plans are useless, but planning is indispensable. We must do some planning. Since I'm throwing out a quote, (laughs) 
I want to go at one from writer Harlan Ellison. This has been wrongly attributed to Einstein in the past. But it was Harlan Ellison who said, the two most common elements in the universe are hydrogen and stupidity. For more information on Harlan Ellison, we refer you to many of the numerous obituaries uh, uh, printed in the wake of his passing earlier this month. But I am unable to resist quoting a little bit from at least one obituary. This was the one in The Economist, July 7th issue, when they said the following. The great AM, the supercomputer slash tormentor slash god at the center of Harlan Ellison's story, I Have No Mouth and I Must Scream, 1967, outdid its creator in bile and anger, but not by all that much. Celebrated as a pyrotechnic writer of short fiction, screenplays, comic books, and criticism, Mr. Ellison was as prodigious a source of anecdote, vendetta, and litigation. The dust jacket of one book called him possibly the most contentious person on earth, noted the economist. The possibly was a bit namby-pamby. I know he successfully sued James Cameron and the maker of The Terminator for basically borrowing heavily from a couple of the uh, TV scripts he'd written for The Outer Limits. He got onto the idea when he heard someone quoting Cameron as saying, yeah, we basically took a couple of old Harlan Ellison scripts and reworked them. Ellison's view was, well, yes, you could have done that if you just would have asked, but you didn't ask. So now I'm going to sue you. He did and he won. He was probably right. If you're interested, go on the web and take a look at some of the clips from the, uh, the Outer Limits segments, and you'll see, yeah, it's pretty, pretty much the Terminator. Although the execution in that movie is, is pretty good, along with Terminator 2. Radio Parallax's uh, frequent friend, Donald Rose, does a pretty good summary of Schwarzenegger's role in, in Terminator 2 and possibly all the rest of his movies by simply using the line, Get down! All right, I want to do some good, bad, and the ugly and some stats, but we're kind of up against it on time here in this segment, so I'm going to defer that to segment two. Let's just do a few minutes of random stuff. Dr. Dina Dell, a very smart guy, a legend of radio, and we like to also note a one-time Radio Parallax guest, would talk about vitamins on his radio program frequently. His family manufactured vitamins, and as he liked to point out, paid his way through medical school. When asked about them, he would say, well, if I think about it, I'll take one. You know, I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't put a lot of stock in, in what they can do for you. They're probably not going to hurt you. Most likely just produce expensive urine. Although I pause when I say that because I did, I did see when I was in medical, some, someone killed themselves with vitamins, but it was vitamin K, a fat-soluble vitamin. The things that are in pills are not such a worry. Nevertheless, a recent review of 18 studies of people taking vitamins, this involved 2 million people, which were followed for an average of about 12 years, has found no scientific evidence that these products help prevent heart attacks, strokes, or death from heart disease, regardless of people's age, gender, and the level of physical activity. These findings echo guidelines from the American Heart Association, which discourages the use of multivitamins for the prevention of heart disease. Should be noted that nevertheless, dietary supplement sales are on the rise. Nearly 30% of Americans take multivitamins on a daily basis, assuming they'll be healthier for it. Researchers like to point out that if you want to improve your health, a better way than gulping vitamins would be to eat a healthy diet rich in fresh fruits and vegetables. You should, of course, stop smoking if you smoke, and you should exercise regularly. 
As a physician, I, I would concur with that advice. I almost said as a practicing physician, but I realized that, well, that phrase no longer applies. Americans own about 46% of the 857 million civilian-owned firearms in the world, despite our making up just 4% of the world's population. That's according to a new report from the International Small Arms Survey. The U.S. has more guns than citizens, with an estimated 120 guns for every 100 residents. The nation with the second highest firearm ownership rate is war-torn Yemen. They only have 52.8 guns per 100 residents. Well, one thing's for sure, it certainly gives them Canadians pause about coming south of the border, don't it? Here's two items from the Week magazine's Only in America section, which are pretty irresistible to us here at Radio Parallax. The first is that a Muslim inmate who signed up for the Ramadan fast at his North Carolina jail is now suing authorities for not serving him lunch. Inmate Travail Speller had previously alerted officials at Mecklenburg County Jail that he would be observing Ramadan. But now he wants $250,000 in damages for denying him lunch, which he calls cruel and unusual punishment based on his religion. Of course, I don't know, the U.S. Postal Service is paying an artist $3.5 million because it erroneously used the Statue of Liberty in Vegas for its model for a postage stamp instead of the real one on Ellis Island. How that translates into $3 million worth of damages, we just don't know here at Radio Parallax. We also don't know how we've come to the state in the next Only in America item, which is that Minnesota State University will offer new social justice training programs to students this coming fall, as well as counseling for those who find the training upsetting. As well as counseling for those who find the training upsetting. The new programs will tackle, quote, core concepts of critical social justice, unquote, including identity and microaggressions. Since the discussions, quote, may cause discomfort, unquote, counselors will be on hand, quote, to speak with students who need to leave the training to talk, end quote. You know, I sometimes think that if Prince Siddhartha lived today and left his house in Nepal to go out into the world, a world filled with injustice and poverty and evil, things about which he was previously unaware, that on today's college campus, they might be required to provide a safe space around the prince keep him away from any microaggressions, and by all means provide plenty of trigger warnings in case something comes along to upset him. And I think I need a break. So let's take one. You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm your host, Douglas Everett. Let's do some more in round two. Stick around.